Shalom and Shana Tova. Happy New Year to those celebrating. My name is Margot Nykirk. I am the Policy and Communications Associate at Israel Policy Forum, recording from New York. And today I'm joined with... I'm Evan Gottesman, Associate Director of Policy and Communications at Israel Policy Forum, also recording from New York. And Eli Koaz, Communications Director in Tel Aviv. How are you guys holding up? It's, it's, a, it's been an interesting couple of days. But it's, it's a good day so far. Good day for you, but probably not a good day for Benjamin Netanyahu. I think we can all agree to that. Why don't I, we get I into would, it? <laughs> yeah, it's been, a, it's been a pretty bad couple of days for Netanyahu. Exactly. Netanyahu is in the midst of pre-indictment hearings regarding cases uh, 1,000, 2,000, and 4,000. This was something that uh, was pushed back by Netanyahu, and the day has come, and this has also been a day of a lot of turmoil for Netanyahu politically, outside of all the legal shenanigans. So, Margot, why don't we remind our listeners what the cases against Benjamin Netanyahu are? Right. So the first two days of the hearings have covered case 4000, which has been considered the more serious case because it involves charges of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. And in this case, Netanyahu supposedly took steps to benefit Shaul Elovich of Betzek for favorable coverage of in Walla News, used in exchange for legislative benefits. And so that has been going on over the past two days. Not a lot has been made public yet. We will see next week in terms of what has actually been concluded in these hearings. But over the next two days on Sunday and Monday, case 1000 and 2000 will be covered. Case 1000 touches upon Netanyahu receiving gifts from Hollywood mogul Ardon Milchin in return for political favors. And case 2000 goes into Netanyahu striking a deal with Arnon Moses for favorable coverage in Yediot Achonot in exchange for curbing the circulation of the newspaper Israel Hayom. So some pretty serious charges, but lots still to be covered. And of course, Israel Hayom, the newspaper owned by uh, Sheldon Adelson that is circulated uh, all over Israel for free. And in these cases, we've heard from Netanyahu's lawyers that they have brought forward new evidence, but other reports out of the hearings claim the opposite. And I would imagine that this is the result of Netanyahu and his legal team being afraid, you know, of who's watching these proceedings. If they can present some sort of positive developments out of that, that prolongs Netanyahu's political life and continues to make him relevant. Whereas if he looks like a losing cause then that's bad news for him in the political arena. So to me, that's why they're claiming that they're going to bring forward this new evidence. What that new evidence is remains completely unclear. This is just their claim. But I think it's to keep Netanyahu out of uh, hot political water. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's usually what lawyers do in these situations. So I wouldn't think much of that. And I'd wait to see, wait until next week to see what happens. So the big question coming out of these hearings is what happens when Netanyahu is indicted or if he's indicted. And that's been a major topic of debate, and it's also been at the core of unity talks between the Likud and Blue and White, and today between uh, the Likud and uh, Avigdor Lieberman's uh, Israel Beitenu. Um, Knesset speaker and uh, number two on the Likud list, uh, Yuli Edelstein, said that Benjamin Netanyahu was willing to accept what has been 
coined the Rivlin model because this was a proposal that was brought forth by President Rivlin in which Netanyahu would take a leave of absence in the context of a rotation agreement should an indictment be put forward. And that's something that apparently Netanyahu has agreed to. It's not something that Blue and White have agreed to, but it's definitely something uh, to take notice, especially because it's being pushed forward uh, by the president, and that in itself is another issue, but this is something to definitely look at. This is definitely an important development, but like the news out of Netanyahu's legal team and the comments they made about having new evidence that they were bringing forward, the exact details of Netanyahu's commitment to the Rivlin model or something similar are a little bit nebulous. And I would imagine that this is, again, to prolong Netanyahu's political life and, you know, the exact circumstances under which Netanyahu would accept the Rivlin model, to me, remain unclear. He says that he would take a leave of absence if indicted, but what if Netanyahu comes out and says he doesn't accept the legitimacy of the outcome of the cases against him. And it's becoming clear that Netanyahu's position really isn't as stable as he's putting on. And at this juncture, he may be more vulnerable than he has been at any point in the past 10 years that he's been in office. And you just look at the sequence of events that have occurred over the past couple of days of coalition negotiations, and it doesn't really look too promising for Benjamin Netanyahu. Yeah, Netanyahu has had a difficult couple of days. He first met with the right-wing bloc, where they affirmed that they would continue to act as united, and they blamed Kahul Lavan for holding them back from forming a unity government. That was followed by a Wednesday meeting that was canceled by Kahul Lavan, which was supposed to be a meeting between Kahul Lavan and Likud regarding forming a unity government. And that was canceled because apparently preliminary conditions between the negotiation teams had not been met. After that, Netanyahu and Lieberman met for the first time in months, which was so-called a big breakthrough, but nothing really came out of the meeting. So at the end, it wasn't a big breakthrough. Well, Evan, what do you think about this meeting? As you mentioned, it was presented as a big deal. And I think the big deal was that the meeting took place to begin with, because throughout this campaign, Netanyahu framed Lieberman as the big enemy, that Lieberman was leading the country into a left-wing government, which, of course, to anyone who's familiar with Lieberman's politics... He's part of the left, not just leading the country. Right, part, part, of, the part of the left. So so an even more preposterous idea to anyone who is even remotely familiar with Avigdor Lieberman's politics, which are decidedly right. Before this election, I would have even said maybe more right-wing than Netanyahu's own personal beliefs, whatever those may be. But in any case, Lieberman was the one who kind of created the catalyst for the second round of elections with this confrontation with the ultra-Orthodox parties that prevented Netanyahu from getting a coalition that would be willing to support him under indictment. So because of that, Lieberman really became Netanyahu's enemy number one throughout the campaign. He was really railing against him. And for this meeting to take place, that was the big deal. But nothing really came out of it. And I think that the way that things have been falling over the past couple of weeks since the election happened, with Lieberman saying that he was not going to recommend any candidate to be prime minister, despite committing to a 
unity government with Lieberman kind of playing his cards very carefully. And now with Lieberman meeting with Netanyahu and having nothing come out of that meeting, I think that Lieberman maybe has some kind of arrangement with Kakhalovan. I don't know that. I don't have any information that you all don't have. But my instinct is this because Lieberman put a lot at risk to help trigger a second election. And he did this whole campaign on the idea of a secular unity government, which is only going to be possible with Likud and with Kakhalavan, and with the knowledge that Kakhalavan are not really willing to sit with Netanyahu under indictment. Now, there could be some modifications to that, and you want to never say never. So even though Lieberman never said that he was trying to get Netanyahu out, the implication was by saying that he wanted to sit with Kakhalavan and Likud simultaneously in one unity government, that that would be the outcome. And so I think that Everything plays in Kakhalavan's favor so far, the way that Lieberman has been doing things. In recommending no one to have the first opportunity to form a government, that put things toward Netanyahu getting the first mandate to form a coalition. And that was what Kakhalavan wanted, because Kakhalavan wants Netanyahu to go first. He is going first now, and they want him to fail and then demonstrate once and for all that he doesn't have a backing and he doesn't really have a mandate to lead the country. So to have him meet with Avigdor Lieberman, who has really centered himself as a major player in Israeli politics and have nothing come out of that meeting, that only reinforces the image that Kakhalavan wants to portray. So I think that that's a good development for Kakhalavan, and I think that that will lead in that direction. But Anything can happen in these next couple of weeks. Yeah, and what, what we've heard coming out of that Lieberman-Netanyahu uh, meeting is that it didn't last very long. It lasted actually less than an hour, which is definitely not promising if we're looking for, in terms of Netanyahu's perspective and him achieving some breakthrough. And we heard that Netanyahu really tried to pressure Lieberman, proposing to him that if he joins the Likud and their bloc, then Kakhalavan will have no choice. Obviously, as you explained very eloquently, uh, that is very unlikely because everything that Lieberman has put on the line. Now, Netanyahu, I think, is obviously looking to the possibility of third elections. And I know that sounds very scary for you, Evan, for you, Margot, for all our listeners. And, and, for, and for anyone who has to work on our website. Yes, yes. It's going to be a lot of busy work. And for the entire state of Israel, I truly hope that that we do not get to that point. So we're in the middle of a very serious blame game. Now, Netanyahu did something very interesting on Wednesday. He's always been pointing a finger at Yair Lapid as the weak point in this Gantz-Lapid rotation agreement. And so what he said on Wednesday, he came out with a statement. This was on Twitter, on his Telegram. And he said the only reason that there's no unity government is Yair Lapid. Lapid is holding Benny Gantz as his hostage. And for unclear reasons, Gantz is giving in to him. It doesn't make sense to him that Lapid is dragging an entire country to elections only because he isn't willing to give up on his dream of becoming prime minister and to give up on his rotation agreement with Gantz. And so this is obviously, at least I think, that there's not much credibility into this, to what he's saying. What he's trying to do is place blame on blue and white. 
And so we had a very interesting development today where Yair Lapid confirmed that he's actually giving up on this rotation agreement for the sake of a unity government. So it's kind of completely putting Netanyahu's attack. I think, I mean, Yair Lapid was a boxer in his early days, and this was a pretty good return punch, let's just say. That's a good way of presenting it. This sort of development raises two issues for me. One is what the original purpose of the rotation agreement was to begin with, because it seems looking back at Israel's history, um, I mean, you had a unity government in the 1980s where Shimon Peres and Yitzhak Shamir rotated the premiership, but within the same party or the same faction, like for example, the Zionist Union in 2015, no one seems to take these unity rotations seriously. I think it was widely speculated that Livni would give up the rotation agreement before the election, and she ultimately did. So this doesn't seem like really earth-shattering news in terms of its implications, and it was a good card, frankly, for Lapid to play because it allowed him to deflect Netanyahu's accusations very easily. And again, I don't know that there were really serious expectations that Lapid, even under the best scenario for Kachal Lavan, would ever enter the prime minister's office because if Kachal Lavan were in a unity government with Likud, whoever's leading Likud at that point, then the premiership would probably rotate between Benny Gantz and the leader of Likud, whoever that would be. So introducing a second Kachal Lavan MK into that mix, like Yair Lapid, would only seem to complicate things. Well, I think if Kaholavan convincingly won the elections, which obviously wasn't the case, there was a very small victory, if you want to call it that, then you could talk about a rotation agreement being implemented between uh, Gantz and Lapid. But again, we're, we, weren't, we weren't even near that. So this makes sense, especially because just kind of accepting the reality that it will be very hard for Blue and White to form a government without the Likud, I mean, possible, but very unlikely. It also puts the ball kind of back in Netanyahu's court. So politically, it's a smart move in terms of maneuvering. But also in practice, as you mentioned, it would be very unlikely that you would have one year Benny Gantz, one year Yair Lapid, then a Likud Likud MK as prime minister. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Also, weren't weren't the parties doing polling on who the public blames for the possibility of a third election, because this also strikes me maybe as Netanyahu trying to shift gears because the people that he had been blaming for a third election previously, namely Avigdor Lieberman, maybe that argument wasn't sticking and he needed a new target to blame. I mean, Yair Lapid is also, I think, the easiest of the Kakhalavan leaders for Netanyahu to associate with the left, even though Yair Lapid has taken great pains to express that he's not a leftist and he doesn't want to be associated with the left. He's still the one that that label will probably stick the most easily with just because by nature of his length of time in politics compared to people like Gabi Ashkenazi and Benny Gantz, who are newcomers to the political realm. And also come with a security background and whatnot. It's harder to debunk them as leftists. And we saw throughout the entire campaign, Netanyahu really going after Lapid as the weak point in blue and white. But uh, 
Margot Netanyahu is very confident in his leadership of the Likud, so much so that there were reports today that he was considering to hold SNAP primaries, which is something that might surprise many. Yeah, that was some big news today. There were rumors that Netanyahu wanted to hold SNAP elections, as you said, SNAP elections for the Likud, but those rumors were quickly cut down after a prompted response by Gidon Saar, where he just tweeted out saying that he's ready. We know that Gidon Saar is Netanyahu's biggest rival in the Likud, and this has been the first marked challenge from someone within Netanyahu's own party within the past five years. And as this was evolving, Netanyahu quickly backed away from snap primaries. So lots of instability right now for Bibi. But I sort of have like a question for you guys. We've been talking a lot about everything that's been going on in Netanyahu, with Netanyahu's life over the past week, both his, we could say his personal life with the indictment and his political life. But what does this all mean for the future? I mean, everything seems very inst- unstable right now. Where, where will we be next week? That's a big question, Margo. My answer is to listen to the next episode of Israel Policy Pod, of course. Listen, I'm going to make a prediction that we will not have another ele- election in this this calendar year. I really hope so too. I really 2019. Hope. Well, wouldn't that that seems that seems like <laughs> that's a really because safe elections prediction. will be in January of 2020, of course. Right. I said that seems that that seems like a very safe prediction because isn't it impossible at this point? Because we're it is so- impossible. It is pretty much impossible. Yeah. So. Very safe prediction, but uh, if you want to put your money on something, you could say that we won't have an election in this calendar year, 2019. Do you want to say, Eli, that we're not going to have a Knesset election in the Jewish year 5780? Ooh, so that is something that I cannot, I really cannot predict. I'm going to say that we will not, but that again, I'm taking a big leap of faith there. And I really hope that I'm right. But obviously, who knows? And I think we'll know a lot more in the next few weeks. And what we talked about after the election was how sounds from within the Likud that were right away immediately after the election, everybody was fully behind Netanyahu. We're starting to hear, I mean, Gidon Sar is the first that happened today. And I think we'll hear more of those noises in the coming weeks. And as the pre-indictment hearing wraps up, those voices will only get uh, louder. So something to definitely follow. Yeah, I think it was a big deal that Gidon Sar even said something today because even up until now, he's been relatively circumspect in his statements about Netanyahu because no one in Likud, even people like Sar who are publicly perceived as being Netanyahu's rivals, want to be the first one to pounce on him because if he comes out of this unscathed somehow or if he maneuvers his way out even for another year, then they are going to face the brunt of the backlash for being disloyal and they don't want to present themselves in front of the voter base who may still like Netanyahu as being the one who took Netanyahu down from the inside of the party. So the fact that Saar feels secure in saying something like, I'm ready, which it's only two words, but it says a lot, that may be a big deal. Yeah, of course. And obviously Saar has a a history uh, with Netanyahu. He left politics uh, because of him. He came back, (laughs) probably he came back with the intention of taking over for him. So it makes sense for him to be the first one. He's very popular among 
Likud MKs and among Likud party members. So it doesn't surprise me as much that it's him, but it does uh, surprise me in the manner of him doing it with just kind of that that two-word tweet, Animuchan, that he's ready. Um, Right. Again, I don't think it's the the question of who it is. And and like I said, someone like Saar is widely understood to be a rival for Netanyahu within the party. But up until now, people have been very careful about what they say about him, about what they said about immunity legislation. I mean, who is the, uh, there's the Likud MK who previously had worked for Gidon Saar. Michal Shir? Michal Shir, right. She and Saar kind of towed around saying something about immunity legislation before the April election, but they couldn't quite say that they were against what Netanyahu was going for. Because again, everyone wants to be really, really careful about how they appear with, vis-a-vis Netanyahu. So uh, today the 22nd Knesset was sworn in. I'm not sure how long the 22nd Knesset will last. You, you uh, seem pretty, you seem pretty sure. certain that the 22nd Knesset will last out this calendar year. I said that for our health and for the health of the, uh, the people of Israel so they don't have to bear another election campaign. And I don't even want to think about it. But the 22nd Knesset sworn in, let's hope. Let's hope they last longer than the 21st. I'm right there with you, Eli. And for the sake of not having, you know, I I was going to say for the sake of not having to do another round of Israeli elections programming and Israeli elections resources with Israel Policy Forum, but people really liked those. So it might be bad for Israel, but it's good for business. So we will have to see whether we have the Israel Policy Forum 120 Project version 3 in the span of 12 months. But that's just something that you're going to have to find out about on the next episode of Israel Policy Pod. Now, before we finish, I just want to know what your guys' thought is. Can Amir Peretz regrow his mustache to its full length in time for the next election campaign? That's the question we should be asking ourselves. I find that question. I find that I find that question to be deeply personal, and I don't know if it's even appropriate for us to consider. I mean, you don't know what he's going through with regard to facial hair loss, if that's even a thing. I'm gonna know. stay out of this. It sounds like a boy conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not going to get an answer on Amir Peretz's mustache, but we do have two other things for you, which are upcoming programs. On October 16th in Los Angeles, our IPF at Young Professionals program is launching a new initiative called Women, Peace, and Security, which is focusing on the roles of women, women's leadership in Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Then on October 17th, we are formally starting up IPF Atid's San Francisco chapter with a chapter launch event, which I will be speaking at. So I hope to see some of you there. And you can learn more about these events and other upcoming programs on our website at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash events. So some great opportunities on the West Coast and we'll be doing more programming throughout the year and you can find it there. So we hope to see you in person or catch you on the podcast and we hope you'll tune in next time to Israel Policy Pod. Israel Policy Pod.